This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. All right, welcome to all of you out there in the internet world. We are here again on the Cornerstone Church Equip Podcast. My name's Mark Vance, and I am joined again by a special guest, uh, Dr. Alex Tuckness. Alex is one of the elders at Cornerstone, a great friend, a wise counselor, and today... We want to actually have a conversation about some area where we need some wisdom to guide us. Recently, we had a podcast out there on balance and wisdom. And really what we kind of big premise there was Romans 14 gives us some wisdom on what to do to walk through all sorts of issues where good, godly, wise people may disagree. And at the end of it, really what Romans 14 advocates is in matters that are not the essentials of our faith we can offer one another liberty and keep between ourselves and God what we might think so that we don't disrupt the unity of the church over debatable matters. But the question that Alex followed up with me on off of that, though, was in Romans 14, while it ends with saying, keep this between yourself and God, Paul, two verses earlier, said, now everything offered to an idol is clean. In other words, Paul himself didn't keep it all between himself and God. And so, He had an opinion, he expressed it, but in a way that preserved and enhanced the unity of the church. And so what we want to talk about is what does unity, disagreement, and dialogue need to look like inside the life of the church? And so, Alex, let me just pose the question to you this way. Does wisdom always require us to be silent on disputable matters inside the life of the church? Is that the path we should take? No, I don't. I don't think so because you know if if you define disputable matters as um, those things about which we can't point to a particular Bible verse that lets us know with certainty what God's will is, it turns out that a huge percentage of life is disputable matters. Um, you know, most of politics, uh, a lot of the details of what church life looks like on a day to day basis. I mean a lot of our daily lives on a day-to-day basis. Lots and lots of things are in that category. Um, And if we can't actually talk to each other uh, about those things in a constructive way, it's actually hard to make good decisions. You know, one of the themes you get in Proverbs is, uh, you know, you you benefit from getting counsel from other people. But if we're all sort of under a gag order to never talk about disputable matters with each other, we actually, I think, would end up making worse decisions rather than better decisions. Yeah, so I think the principle there that we need to kind of do the follow-up on balance and wisdom is to say we need one another to make wise decisions about how to live with gospel faithfulness in the world where God put us. And so if we're going to talk about, hey, what sort of car should you buy? And I'm like, well, look, I want to keep that between myself and God. I don't. Then we're going to basically keep everything in life between ourselves and God. There's all sorts of um, places where we do need each other to basically work through what the freedom God has given us should look like in love of God and love of others. But there's a certain way of dialogue, a certain way of what you could call civility in how we talk to each other that seems to govern the way in which we do express ourselves. And so, Alex, I want to—I think you've modeled this for me. You've modeled this as an intellectual in a public life, but you've also modeled this as an elder at Cornerstone. You have this ability to take what people say and hear the absolute best of their argument and help them forward, which really just enhances the ability of people to talk to each other and to figure out a path forward. And so what are some of the principles 
that have helped you live that way, like that can help us as we know we have to dialogue, but we might have to do it in an area of disagreement. So let's hit some principles, and then we'll get into some practicals of how we might apply this together. So some principles, Alex. Yeah. Well, I think I think one to start off with is just uh, remembering that every human being is an image bearer, right? Someone who who reflects God's image and is worthy of being treated respect simply because of that. They they don't have to be of the right political party. They don't have to be of the right nationality. You know, all of those things are are secondary, if that. Um, and so. If, if we think of people as having a certain uh, dignity and respect simply because they are created in God's image, that gives us a motive, a reason to want to deal with them in, uh, in a respectful way. So principle one, always remember you're an image bearer. Okay, okay. second principle, where would you go, Alex? Yeah, so number two, I would say seek truth by engaging ideas rather than attacking people. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it can be really tempting uh, when you're in an argument with people just to get angry and let them have it. You know, Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. Um, and so I, I think if, if somebody says something that you disagree with, there's a big difference between like showing them that you've heard what they said and then giving them reasons that respond to their reasons versus saying, well, only somebody who's stupid would think something like that. Or yeah, that just shows right. how close-minded you are, right? If, if that's all you say, you're really just attacking the person. And I think all of us, if we kind of look on our, our past personal experiences, um, just attacking someone's person has as close to a 0% chance of success as anything I can think of of actually persuading people. It just makes the other person angry in response, right? It doesn't actually do anything to, uh, to persuade them to your opinion. And I'll also say, like, it, it shows a respect for them and a respect for truth at the same time. One of the things that was actually influential for me, this is a number of years ago, talking to someone, uh, is she was describing how one of her professors um, had said, uh, our goal in this class is like whenever we do like academic name dropping, well, so-and-so's position is this or so-and-so's position is that, to actually state their position so fairly that if the author were in the room, they would say, yes, that's what I think. Mm -hmm. um, because it's just really easy to want to use a caricature version of your opponent's argument because a caricature straw man kind of version is much, much easier to defeat. But it's actually, I'm, as a Christian, it's actually a kind of form of bearing false witness. Like you're attributing a worse version of a position to the other person than what they actually hold. And so I think just a commitment to truth and integrity involves trying to, hmm. to do that as well. You know, I, I think of these first two principles, treating people as image bearers and seeking the truth rather than attacking the person. Um, you know, I think actually this is one of those areas where social media in its essence really can make this hard. Mm -hmm. um, it has made it, it like, I, I know we've both talked about this, um, how you observe that people will say things or type things in a social media post directed toward another person that they would never say to the person. I think of even, uh, is it 
Jimmy Kimmel. He's a late night talk show host, and he has this thing called Mean Tweets, where he has celebrities who come on read the meanest things that people have tweeted out about them. And it's shocking and graphic and horrible. And you're certain there's no way a person would say that to another person. But there's something about the forum, even you think of social media, Alex, what you just said, the principle that you want to represent in a person's idea so well, they could say, yep, you nailed it. It's hard to do that in like 160 characters consistently. So it it both enhances, social media enhances distance from the real image bearer, but also eliminates the nuance it takes to understand a person fully. I just think it's sometimes one of our disciplines when we try to honor these first two principles is even to consider the context in which we have the dialogue. That in person, there's just things you can do in understanding that you can't in social media sphere. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, I think there's there's some natural empathy we have for other human beings as image bearers that is enhanced when we actually see them, right? And so the the kind of lack of visual feedback you're getting in social media is part of the problem. Sometimes the anonymity of social media is, is kind of the problem. I also I was thinking about I think one other part of what makes social media you know the toxic atomic dumpster fire that you've uh, <laughs> called it right is uh, the algorithms reward things that get lots of hits, lots of retweets. Well, appealing to anger is actually one of the most effective ways to get lots of hits, lots of clicks, lots of retweets, and things wow. like that. And yeah. so it creates this like ongoing cycle where there's like structural incentives to misrepresent the other person, you know, because if you're already predisposed to think badly of a group, and I tell you, you won't believe the outrageous thing they just said, you're predisposed to believe it. So it gives me mm. every incentive to misquote, take out of context, distort, um, because that's going to keep the whole cycle going. Of you know, And I get then the positive feedback of lots of people yeah. reacting to what I say. Yeah, that's a great insight. Okay, let, let's move on. You got a couple more principles for us, Alex. Yeah. Here. We've talked about image bearers, about seeking truth. Give us kind of a third principle for how to have those sort of civil dialogues and disagreement. Yeah. So I would say one of the things is to look for what is partly right uh, in your opponent and what your opponent is saying, uh, rather than just assuming it's a simple black and white, like I'm right, they're wrong. Uh, you know, one of the things that... Um, has been helpful for me is, is thinking through the idea that like pure error, uh, pure falsehood is actually not attractive to us. I think God created us to desire and love truth. And so the things we tend to fall for that are falsehoods are always going to be something that's true with other false things mixed in that distorted in some way. Um, but what that means is even when I'm dialoguing with somebody I strongly disagree with, there's something in what they're saying that's true, right? There's something in what they're saying that uh, has merit. And so if I make it my goal to try to figure out what that is, um, that gives me an opportunity to try to both show them that I'm listening and not just dismissing them. Uh, And it also helps to try to see if there is some common ground we can agree on to then frame in the places where we disagree. You know, Tim Keller has been really helpful on this. He talks about Mm -hmm. like, you know, there are going to be some areas with the gospel 
in any culture where the gospel affirms what the culture thinks, and there's going to be other areas where the gospel contradicts what the culture thinks. But it's really helpful in your dialogue if you can start with the first group of issues before you move to the the second group of issues. Mm, that's great. So look for what's right. Build a build a bridge, not a wall, between people in dialogue. Find that right. common ground and walk across it. All right, final principle for us, Alex, that you've put out here. Yeah, I think it's just to remember that you're not infallible. I mean, you know, we we started off by talking about disputable matters, right? So the in some cases we have the inspired word of God that is giving us clear direction on a particular question. So we can just say with a lot of confidence, this is true, right? So, um, you know, is Jesus the Messiah, the son of God? What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, there's no equivocation on this, right? You know, that Jesus is the Messiah is like, there is no other claim more often attested, I think, in the whole New Testament than that. Um, But when I start trying to figure out like, what moral principles can we extract from the Bible to apply to new circumstances that, you know, people weren't even imagining 2,000 years ago? Um, And then I go from those moral principles to try to think what the political implications are of those moral principles, right? There's a whole other place where people might agree on the moral principle and disagree on how politics should relate to that. Like, there's just so many places where I could turn out to be wrong. Um, So if we can go into these uh, discussions uh, with a recognition of our own fallibility, it helps us to be genuine, willing to learn from the other person. There's a willingness to revise your opinions in the light of arguments other people make that people can tell, right? People can tell the difference between someone who's engaging in dialogue for the purpose of learning and understanding uh, versus someone who's just already set in their ways, already sure they're right, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, one of my favorite, uh, places in Proverbs is in, uh, Proverbs, uh, 26, uh, verses four and five, uh, right back to back. It says, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. So it seems to be saying, okay, so you're talking to a fool. Should you answer him according to his foolishness? Depends, Right. Um, and so the first layer of meaning is it takes wisdom to know which proverb to apply in which situation, right? It takes wisdom to know what kind of fool am I dealing with. But his point is there's some kinds of people who have foolish ideas who are actually still open to correction and learning. And you can actually have a civil dialogue and you can correct those people and they may actually be able to learn something as a result. But then there are other people who they may be foolish, but they are so set in their foolishness that trying to like argue them out of it is just going to cause you to descend to their level. And my hunch is there's some of that that was probably going on in uh, Romans 14. You know, like Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. there's a certain level at which Paul has made the case for what he thinks about food sacrifice to idols and all that. It's not like they haven't heard him. It's not like they don't know the arguments, but he reaches a point where say, look, But if you know people who are still settled in the other position, let it be and don't keep, you know, feeling like every time you meet them, you have to say, by the way, you know, you're wrong about the food and the idols and everything. You know, you can, you know, there's a part where you've just pounded on the door too often and you just need to recognize they're not opening the door up. And so wisdom says you can back off. 
But I also think, you know, we talked a little about Romans 14 in a town hall last night, and one of my reflections on that is that part of the argument of Romans 14 is that we should never disobey conscience. Mm -hmm. But it's also very clear from Romans 14 that Paul believes we can move the way conscience reacts. Conscience is like an alarm system that tells us when we might be going off the moral highway. But that alarm system, everybody knows that you can have the fire alarm in your house that every time you fry a strip of bacon just goes off. Mm -hmm. And it's actually very unhelpful because it's too attuned to that one thing. It's not so you begin to ignore it. On the other hand, you everyone also knows you can have that alarm system where you could have lit a grease fire five feet into the air on you, and it just doesn't go off at all. Both an overactive or inactive conscience are unhelpful, but the conscience isn't isn't like to your principle. It's not infallible. That's the right. conscience isn't infallible. The conscience is informed and instructed by Scripture and shaped by wisdom and understanding. So I even I think that's a helpful thing is, Recognize that your conscience isn't infallible. You could actually need to let Scripture reshape your standards so that your conscience goes off more accurately. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, one way of thinking about it is, you know, sin has two, two influences on our conscience. So, like, one is we're just we're born with a, a, a nature that's broken because of sin, right? So just naturally, our conscience doesn't, you know, point toward God and his ways as easily and naturally as it would have in the absence of the fall. But second, we're also born into a particular culture and a particular society, right? So if you're, if you're, you know, like Tom Twain, uh, Mark Twain has the, you know, the, the classic example where, you know, someone is wrestling with his conscience, but his conscience is telling him the worst thing he could do is help a slave escape to freedom. You know, because he's been socialized in a racist culture that upholds slavery. And so he's he's absorbed the views about race in his culture into his own soul. Uh, and so interestingly, in that situation, right, he thinks he's doing wrong, um, you know, but he's actually doing what's right. And I think the, you know, Paul is trying to kind of balance two things, right? On the one hand, there is a real kind of fundamental disrespect for God if you think God thinks this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? So we don't want to be putting people in a situation where we're pressuring them to do that. But at the same time, because our consciences may be wrong, we need to be able to talk to each other uh, so that hopefully we can um, correct some of those things that mm. we've internalized that actually aren't, aren't true. Yeah, I, I think of Augustine's words in this, where he says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. And I think if we had time to sit down with Augustine, he'd say, now, when I say in non-essentials, liberty, what I don't mean is everybody does whatever they want about everything. That's what right. I mean is that we give one another a the benefit of doubt so that inside the context of God's church, we can inform and shape and push we need those outside perspectives to push us to inform conscience to live in a way that's good and wholesome. And I think even in this moment, particularly, the coronavirus moment has put people into positions where we just don't know quite what to do or what to listen to. It's the uncertainty of it that makes it so difficult. And that's where dialogue becomes so incredibly important in the church. We have to be able to find a way I'm just convinced of this, Alex. One of the most potent 
and powerful witnesses the Christian church can have right now is a church that is united in the gospel and therefore able to give one another charity and grace in their ongoing dialogue. Like what people will do about um, how quickly we should reopen. I know the one thing people in the church should be able to do is talk about this in love. I, I know that that the the world's conversation that polarizes and politicizes instantly, that should not characterize the church of Jesus Christ. Like there's a way for us to walk through these sort of issues where we respectfully dialogue. So, okay, I want to do a test case. Okay. Um, we'll do a test case and we'll wrap this up. So the test case that we're going to throw out is, do you or do you not wear a mask in corporate worship as you come back together in in church. Mask or no mask? So, okay, Alex, I'm going to take the side of no mask. You're going to take the side of mask. And I get to go first because you're so incredibly smart and persuasive. And if I let you go first, I'm going to be swayed by you. So I'm going first here. Okay, so I'm going to say, I hope that churches don't wear the mask. And I I don't plan to wear the mask. Um, Now, again, people, I'm I'm just trying to, I'm playing this part. To be frank with you, I probably will wear the mask when I get back to worship, but let's, I'm playing a part here. So the reason why for me though, is number one, on the public health level, we just are getting wildly conflicting data and I can't entirely tell how effective or ineffective a mask will be when we get together. And so um, even inside of, you know, the president's own team, there seems to be some dialogue and debate. And so in the uncertainty, what I do know with certainty is I know people are emotional, spiritual, psychological, whole beings. And a hug or a handshake or just even be able to look a person in the face and smile at them, that can lift up a broken heart. And I know that the church needs to do that sort of time when people are struggling with isolation, mental illness, all that. And so I I just think the mask prevents a barrier to human interaction that is so essential to Christian worship. So what would you say to that, Alex? Well, I think I, I want to say that there's a lot there that's obviously right. Like that we are social beings the way God created us. He created us to live in community. And, you know, facial expressions really are a significant part of how we communicate with each other. Like a lot of communication is nonverbal, right? And, and you're losing a lot of the access to that nonverbal communication. So I think it's very unhelpful when the people who are saying we should wear masks advocate it for in a way, advocate for that in a way that doesn't acknowledge the cost of what they're asking people to do, right? So in other words, if we say, oh, but it's nothing, it's, you know, it's actually, no, it is, it is something. Um, but I would also say, it's still only one fraction of the possible ways we can communicate with each other. We really can still speak to each other. We still can listen to each other. Uh, you know, we'll get really good at expressing things with our eyes and eyebrows, right? If, uh, if we have to, if that's what's available to us. And I think, you know, you could say when there's so much uncertainty about how much, you know, airborne uh, particles and things like that uh, are responsible for uh, significantly spreading the virus. Um, in the state of uncertainty, there's a lot to be said for erring on the side of caution, right? So if there's even a one in three or one in four chance that the people who think airborne spread is a significant part of how this works, um, in most of life, you know, a one in four chance of something really bad happening to you and to other people because of your decision would be enough for you to not make that decision, 
right? Um, and so some of it has to do with, with how in the face of uncertainty uh, we want to try to weigh risks. So I would say the best argument for wearing the mask is there's enough evidence that the risk is there and enough other ways we can communicate uh, that this is a, a better way um, of trying to love our neighbor. You know, that's just a, so I just wanted to, that's a snapshot, right? We could go further in. I mean, even Alex, you've made the point. I think it's really wise. In many cases, when I go to Menards, for instance, a great Iowan home building repository of junk, um, I wear the mask because they ask me to wear the mask. That's right. And that's their purview of authority and ownership. Mm-hmm. And so I also think that this doesn't just play into a personal health decision. This plays into right now, a lot of us are having to learn the discipline of uncomfortable submission to authority. That's right. I, it pushes on me. I don't enjoy it. And so actually the argument of saying, I just don't like it. God does really good refining things when we do things we don't like. That's right. And so I'm finding myself again and again right now going, I don't like this but I think it might be good for me. And I think that's, so I'm going to land the plane here, Alex. You've given us so much food for thought. And I think what I hope, I hope people do coming off of this podcast is actually engage someone in a loving conversation. Be a follower of Christ who actually can get into the sticky place, you know, with somebody else and talk in love and listen. You know, if I could give you three words as we come out of this podcast, I'd say this have these three things as your goals when you go to have a conversation. Have the goal number one be this. I want the person leaving this conversation to know I love them. If you set that as your goal, your number one goal is to love. How are you going to accomplish that? Number two, you're going to listen with respect and with honor. And, And if you never said anything, but you could walk away saying to that person, here's what I heard you say, and they said, you got it better than I even could have put it, that you had succeeded loving, listening. And then finally, know your limits. Uh, Be humble. Know that you might not get it all right. But at the end of it, if you come out of a conversation having learned something and having built up a friend for the sake of the gospel, I think you've done something really good and really valuable. Alex, I know that you've done that often with me in my life. You've exemplified that for us in our church. And so it's just good to have you as a guide in this time to kind of help us think it through. So thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, glad to be here. 